It was a really long book. Well, I got stuck on the contract, so we can talk about this. I got stuck on the contract, so it what I thought was a 18-month to two-year project would end up being a six-year project. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen, and I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Bourbon and whiskey, it runs deep in central Kentucky, but so did one of the largest marijuana manufacturing and trade rings in history. In Cornbread Mafia, this tells the story of how Johnny Boone, Bobby Joe Shoemaker, and many others created one of the most highly sophisticated marijuana trades that ran right through Bardstown, Kentucky right in the heart of bourbon country. James Higdon, he's the author of the book, and he joins the show to talk about how this cultural phenomenon really had a very big tie back to the whiskey industry during Prohibition. Many got into the illegal distilling business because that's what they knew how to do, and that was the only means they could of providing for their families. We talk more about the bourbon connection and how that eventually turned into marijuana territory, which opened the door to elaborate plans to evade law enforcement and even had DEA swarming with helicopters around Bartstown. This story has also put Jim on the path for being an advocate of marijuana legalization, and he's even started his own CBD gummy business called Cornbread Hemp. So if you enjoy stories like these, I would highly recommend you reading or listening on Audible to The Cornbread Mafia. With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Tacos Donahue. That's a hell of a name. I mean, maybe I should rename my kids. I love that name, Tacos. I wish I had a cool name like Tacos instead of Fred sometimes. That's a, such a cool name. Like, hey, I'm Tacos. I wonder if he ever eats tacos. Like, when you go to eat tacos, tacos, do you, like, put your name on the order and they come back to you and say, sir, we know this is your order, but we need your name. Like, yeah, that is my name. It's Tacos. Anyway, I'm going to get to the above the char, but credible name. Tacos Donahue. I was hoping you could give your thoughts and opinions on infinity bottles on Above the Char. I've been contemplating mixing some bottles in an old bottle and would love to hear your opinion on the trend. So when it comes to infinity bottles, you know, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan, but I'm not I'm not going to poo-poo it, the idea either. First of all, you know, that this is something that's been done forever. And, and I think that's where I get a little you got to know who I am. I'm a historian. I always like to be accurate with modern trends and kind of give some backgrounds to them. And I mean, the infinity bottle is really just replacing the decanter that people used to pour older whiskeys in and would occasionally do some home blends. I mean, that's all it is. They're doing like a, it's like a decanter. But I understand the modern era wants to do something differently than they would their grandparents, if you will. And that's what this is. And so what's exciting about the infinity bottle trend is that it's exploring new avenues of home blending. And I got to judge uh, Jason Mash and Drums Blendageddon, and that was a ton of fun for me because I got to see what people were doing on the home blend side. And it just was really, it's really cool to see how far a lot of enthusiasts have come with, with their home blending exercises. And that's where this is really that's what this is really all about, tacos. It's like, how much do you want to play around with it? If you just want to put one, you know, one whiskey in there and kind of let it go, then hey, that's great. But you're transferring it to another bottle. 
maybe you get a little uh, residual effect from what was in there from years past, but at the end of the day, it's still going to be that same whiskey. And I think where it gets cool is we throw in a little uh, Breckenridge, a little Buzzard's Roost, a little Elijah Craig, the Jack Daniels, maybe get something like Rossville's in there, Rocktown from Arkansas. I mean, just like a lot of little blends that you could do that you can never replicate again. It's kind of like making a stew, you know? How's it going to taste? So I think that's where the fun is, is your own adventure into whiskey. Think of it as like, you know, as a kid, I take apart my GI Joes and I put one leg on another one. That's what we're doing here. We're just taking apart the whiskey and creating our own right there in the infinity bottle. So that's going to do it for uh, this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you want to be like tacos, great name, tacos. Hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Just click the contact button. Send me your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air and answer your question. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000 Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof, And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Fred here today talking to, actually, we got two authors in the room. This is going to be fun because even before we started recording, they were kind of going back and forth about, oh, publishers, and what do you do with this, and movie contracts, and I was like, this is something that's way over me, but this is going to be an exciting show because, and I'm really surprised Ryan's not here because Ryan, this is all happening in his backyard Mm -hmm. and I'm surprised that he's not going to be like, oh yeah, I knew, I knew that was happening. Like 
I remember that was missing. People were missing in Barstown before this was all happening, too. Yeah, I, you know, I wonder, too, if, like, uh, he purposely didn't show up because we got CBD gummies in front of us. And, <laughs> and he might have been, like, popping them as we're going. So this is going to be a great conversation. Jim and I have actually messaged each other on Twitter numerous times, and we have many mutual friends, and I blurbed one of his books about Portland. Just a great all-around guy and incredible talent in the journalistic world. Yes, and I'm I'm really excited to kind of get into this. And for anybody that doesn't know, we're going to be talking about Cornbread Mafia. It was the name of the group that was the group of men in Kentucky who had created the largest domestic marijuana production operation in the United States. And it was all based in Marion, Nelson County in central Kentucky, where a lot of bourbon production happens today. So Mm -hmm. we're going to really dive into that. So today on the show, we have Jim Higdon. He is the author of Cornbread Mafia, but he is also the co-founder of Cornbread Hemp. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for bringing us the the CBD gummies. We're we're already going to start getting really relaxed here soon. It's going to be a great tasting. It's going to be the first tasting that you've had of this this kind. It's going to be fantastic. (laughs) All in here. All in. So... We'll kind of just dive into the the book a little bit because that has a lot of ties. I mean, we were talking before, and that has a lot of ties into the bourbon, which talks into moonshining and bootlegging and uh, eventually get into marijuana and then cocaine. And then it gets back into now you doing CBD. So we'll kind of start a little bit towards the beginning because the setup of this book kind of talks about how moonshining was going rampant around this part of the country in Central County, Kentucky. And that kind of set everything up because it was just really an unregulated part of the United States at that point. And that's just how people either kept themselves entertained or put food on the table or anything like that. You're absolutely right. How this started for me was I started looking into the cornbread mafia. And like you said, the federal government said it was the largest domestic marijuana syndicate in American history. Between 85 and 89, 70 guys from Marion, Washington, Nelson counties, which are all premium bourbon distillery country, were arrested on 30 farms in 10 states with what the police said was 200 tons of marijuana. And what was fascinating about these guys is almost every single one of them to a man was raised Catholic in this central Kentucky Catholic region. And as someone who's really interested in cause and effect as it relates to narrative, the question is, well, why is that? Like, why are all these guys Catholic? And as I kept looking into the causes, it all came back to prohibition. And before Prohibition in 1919, Marion County had nine active distilleries. And when Prohibition hits, all of those men are put out of work. And they're all Catholic men with literally a dozen children each. And they're all faced with a reckoning. Do they let their kids go hungry or do they break the law doing the one thing they know how to do to support their families? And it really wasn't much of a choice for these men. They just got right to it. And the community then developed an understanding that lawbreaking could occur without disrupting the community. A division between God's law versus man's law, that you could break man's law but still be a member of this community in good standing by being a part of the church. So that was the culture that three, four, five generations later, I grow up in in Lebanon with this understanding that things were kind of going on that weren't supposed to be, but it was okay because they're okay and things were just okay. But it was really difficult to understand that until I did the the research and really kind of understood. I went through the Lebanon Enterprise, my hometown newspaper's microfilm, through all 13 years of prohibition. And the headlines read like a comic book. It's like, car chase, car chase, gunfight, car chase. (laughs) And you go to the next county over and it's farm news, farm news, heart attack, farm news. 
right? And it's because of all this stuff that's happening in, in Marion County, prohibition made alcohol illegal to manufacture, transport, or sell, but not to exist, right? So the warehouses in Marion and Nelson County where bourbon had been distilled before prohibition was still sitting there during prohibition, and it wasn't illegal for it to exist there just to move. And every year it sat there, the more valuable it became, and stealing it became quite the pastime. And George Remus from Cincinnati was sending gangsters down from Ohio to pilfer the warehouses of central Kentucky. And the stories that I pulled out of the newspapers about these sorts of activities were just fascinating. And it mirrored almost exactly what was going on in the same town in the 1980s with marijuana. You just replace marijuana with moonshine or with, or with in this case, red whiskey, as they were calling aged bourbon at the time. And it's completely parallel. I was really fascinated when I listened to the part about George Remus because that really, I mean, I've been downtown. I, I've been to the Fraser Museum and I've kind of seen a lot of that. But really listening to you tell the story was kind of really where it sunk into me because you said that you know he went and got his medicinal license to be able to sell whiskey but all he was doing was actually going to all these warehouses and getting barrels and then having them intercepted on purpose exactly so exactly. so they could just be bootlegged and then sold in the Chicago area that's exactly right so just to put a pin on this he got a medical license to distribute medicinal bourbon from a pharmaceutical supplier as a pharmaceutical supplier in Northern Kentucky, and then was buying bourbon from existing warehouses. And because he knew when the transports were happening, he was in stealing them from himself and diverting them into the illegal market. I mean, he was a lot of things, but he wasn't stupid. <laughs> but he could also probably claim insurance losses on it. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. A little funny story about Remus is when he got arrested, he actually sold a lot of whiskey to Brown Foreman and Stitzel Weller. So he sold some of his uh, receipts to uh, then Pappy Van Winkle. I did not know that. Yeah. There we go. Another little tidbit. Now, there was another thing that you had mentioned. There's actually something else too before that, because you had kind of gone a, a good amount of just bourbon history at the very beginning of the book. And you mentioned Basil Hayden in actually chapter one mm -hmm. about how it was an expedition in 1785 by Maryland Catholics that fled. And then his bourbon recipe was handed down for different generations that was actually what became old granddad. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, so so I mean, on on revolutionary war land grants, they leave what was then the colony of Maryland and come to Kentucky. They settle Marion County because navigable waterways were not yet safe against Native American ambush at night. So the Shawnee were doing canoe ambushes of white settlements on navigable waters at night. They would just canoe up and kill everyone at night. So the Catholics, when they came in, this bunch of Catholics came in inland where there was water, but not navigable water because it was safer. Did you know all that? I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. So Basil Hayden is like, he was huge, huge for the early part of not just bourbon, but for Kentucky. And, you know, he was, he kind of led uh, the Catholics in and there was, I think it was a cardinal in the early 1800s talking about him being one of the most important Catholics in America at that time. Founding Catholics, I guess you could say, in Kentucky yeah. that then started bourbon. I mean, it's just well, and this one was good the, one good domino. After and this story. was not really a Catholic country. I mean, remember we were largely a Protestant country, and so Catholics were often not as powerful. And so to have like you know to have a base like they did here, that was it was big for the Catholic Church. 
and that Catholic community is still there. I grew up Catholic in Marion County, and when I was growing up, it was more than half of the county was practicing Catholic or culturally Catholic anyway, and it's all sort of an extension of this beginning that that started with the Basil Hayden or the Basil Hayden. I keep saying Basil. It is Basil, right? So I keep I keep uh, saying the, that incorrectly. The, the family tells me Basil, yeah. but uh, but I'm not going to correct Fred Minnick. <laughs> I still, I mean, Basil Hayden is, uh, <laughs> you know, Basil is an English pronunciation. Basil's more of an American pronunciation. And, yeah, it's also, uh, you know, something you can pick out of the garden, so... <laughs> oh, and, a, and, a, and that, a basil and basil is actually quite good. You express a leaf of basil and put it in a basil Hayden. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you were Didn't about know. to. I thought we were getting into marijuana all of a sudden. <laughs> oh, we can do that too. But <laughs> like basil and a little bit of a little bit of other basil. No, just, just just express a leaf of basil and put it in your basil Hayden. It's 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 nice. Three different basils. We'll try it next time. So there was also another pretty funny part of the book where I had no idea that Central Kentucky. You had or had somebody had coined it as the Fort Lauderdale of Central Kentucky. I believe that was the esteemed Courier Journal. Yeah. <laughs> that, coined that term because Marion County at the time was the last wet county to the Tennessee line. Because it was Catholic, it was this oasis of alcohol-friendly culture where all the surrounding counties outside of metropolitan areas were all dry. There was also a nightclub culture in Lebanon. So teenagers from Louisville were coming down to Lebanon on a regular basis on weekends to go to Club 68 to watch very sort of high-profile acts, especially before 1964, like before segregation ends, when black performers at a high level weren't allowed to play in large metropolitan areas in white theaters. So one of the few places in Kentucky that had an integrated music scene was Lebanon. And so teenagers were rolling down by the carload to Lebanon on weekends. And there was some very loose interpretations of age of drinking laws in Lebanon. And so indeed, it was the Fort Lauderdale of central Kentucky. I mean, that all kind of just spawns back into everything about Catholicism I and mean, growing up Catholic myself. Yeah, I mean, it's you, you don't turn a blind eye to it, but you're you're a little forgiving, I guess, when it comes to some of that. Well, just very creative in how you negotiate the laws as they're written. So Hylene George, the gentleman who owned Club 68, was quite brilliant in the way that he built the club. He built it as a dance hall, not as a bar. So at the time, 16-year-olds get into a dance hall and you could serve beer but not liquor. And so 16-year-olds could get in, and then on the property, but not connected to it, he also had a liquor store. So anyone who wanted liquor could go to the liquor store and buy a pint, or you go inside and have a beer, just you couldn't get them in the same place. Wow, that's a smart guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, figuring out some sort of way to build a tunnel between the two places. I love that. And in the back was the illegal poker room that my great uncle Charlie ran there for some time, Uncle Charlie Willett. That's my outlaw side. Oh, Really? Talk a little bit more about that. So my Willett side, my great-grandfather Willett was raising his family on what is now the caretaker house at what is now Maker's Mark. So before it was the abandoned Burke Springs distillery, and my grandmother was born there and then was raised actually in Fredericktown, aka the Berg. They were living for reasons that aren't quite well understood, but can be speculated to uh, why they were living in the caretaker house of a distillery during a decade of prohibition. Quite putting the dots together. Yeah, we'll see it, how it, it yeah, all comes together. It started to come together. After the book was published, it started to come together. <laughs> it happens sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the lost chapter, you got to go ahead and put that one out there then. Yeah, but my Uncle Charlie ran a poker game that began in approximately 1960 and ended in approximately 1990. That's a long game. Yeah. For sure. Wow. So there's another part uh, you talk about 
L&N Railroads. For anybody that doesn't know, that was a railroad system that ran between Louisville and Nashville. How important was that to distilleries at the time? It was vital, especially vital to the Lebanon economy. Lebanon was the spur of the LNN. So the LNN during the Civil War had a spur that came into Lebanon and it terminated there. Where it splits off the main LNN line to come to Lebanon is now the town known as Lebanon Junction for folks trying to figure out why there's a Lebanon and a Lebanon Junction. It's because of the LNN. And then during and after the Civil War, the rail line from Lebanon was extended through Appalachia to Atlanta. So that's how Lebanon gets connected to the world by the railroad. And then later when when it's nightclub time, uh, lots of uh, black performers are coming into town on the rail line. And then as it relates to bourbon, it speaks for itself. Like we were, we were part of the global economy in the mid-19th century, moving barrels of bourbon to Europe on the rail. At this point, we are now creeping up to the point in history where the temperance movement is is starting to come in, right? You had mentioned the book that there are a lot of labels that were out there. There's more than just Maker's Mark. There are hundreds of labels and hundreds of distilleries, maybe not hundreds of distilleries, but hundreds of labels that were being produced out of a bunch of distilleries out there. And then there was the temperance movement that kind of started moving it to a, a dry county, correct? Well, Marion County was only dried, well, only officially dried during the 13 years of prohibition. It's never been dry. The neighboring counties are starting to moisten up, but Marion's always been wet. The temperance movement never fully penetrated Lebanon, Marion County. We were the bastion against that stuff. And when they came in, there's an episode in the book in the 50s, an ABC officer decided to build a home in Lebanon. And while his home was under construction, it was dynamited as a message to him as to how members of the community felt about the ABC coming to town. Ooh, I did not know about that one. There we go. So Marion County, it was home to a, a family of Blairs. The Blairs were like really great distillers. And they had like these triangle warehouses that they would age whiskey in. After Prohibition, they were coming in and really hitting it hot. But then when the government started making you make whiskey for World War II, or basically forced you to not make whiskey or make industrial alcohol, you know, they couldn't afford to do that. They went out of business. So I wonder... I always think about some of those great names and those counties that have been long forgotten. Like I've always wondered, you know, where did they go? Did they go into some of the illicit practices? You don't have to name the Blairs, <laughs> but just uh, people, some of these folks that were in the game during this time, you know, when things went south, I know you said they went to moonshining and all that, but were some of them pretty big names like for the time? I mean, the Hayden family stands out as a family that survives prohibition by engaging in it. And there's other families too. I mean, you know, the Willett family to which I belong would be another example of distillers who didn't quite make it. There's also, you know, like a branch of the Beam family. Like mm -hmm. one one side of the Beam family comes out of it fine and another side of the Beam family does not out of prohibition. And you're right. There's also the the modified prohibition of World War II where grain alcohol, stereo alcohol was being, was, was being produced. And, you know, Maker's Mark doesn't start at what was Burke Springs until after that period. The Samuels don't buy that property until 1950. Mm. Now, there's another part, last part of the book about kind of bourbon that I found really intriguing because we're now into the part where, you know, it's it's either during prohibition or slightly kind of prohibitions getting repealed. But you were talking about that a lot of distillers were being sold for pennies on the dollar back then. And there was just a lot of stuff. And this is also where Remus came in. But there was also at the very beginning of our conversation where you said people had to make a choice. Do they distill and feed their family or do they go do something else? But when we're talking about 
distilling here, it's not just like on a pot still like out in the woods. I mean, you you had said that they were using stills that were producing a thousand gallons a day and not just something that was, you know, sort of primitive. Correct. And some of those industrial sized stills were also in a barn or in a basement. They were getting very clever about how they were disguising the still during prohibition. I mean, the revenuers would would stand on lookouts and look for look for the smokestacks and then go in to where they saw the smokestack and and do a raid. I, one of the possible etymologies of moonshine is that we're, it was being done at night to avoid the, the smokestack being detected by the revenuer. And by the 50s, one of the innovations of people who were still bootlegging moonshining was that they started using propane gas for their cooking so that it didn't make a smoke trail. So they could do it in a barn at an industrial scale without a visible sign of it occurring. See, these are things that I wouldn't know about. But then again, I'm not trying to distill either, so. <laughs> Whatever, we know what's going on in this yeah. basement here. Yeah, it's, well, we, we, it is a little toasty down here now, but I'm not going to blame that on the propane. We kind of basically covered a lot of what chapter one is in the book, and that is basically just giving a background of how, at this point, a lot of people were, maybe it was the law, or maybe a lot of things were kind of turning a blind eye to Marion County, and that sort of set up everything that was going to happen with inside of the marijuana ring. Mm-hmm. And before we go into it, and I don't want to probably go into it, I don't want to give away a lot of the book here because I think people should really go and, and listen to it or read it, but kind of give a little bit of a background of, of Johnny Boone, Bobby Joe Shoemaker, Bickett Brothers, all that sort of stuff, and how this all kind of played out a little bit in the very beginning. So it really all comes around the Vietnam War. So these guys were either drafted into Vietnam, or in the cases of guys like Johnny Boone, had a farmer exemption from the draft. If if you're the only male child of a family on a farm, you can get exempted from the draft because you're holding down the farm. But the guys who go off to Vietnam recognize, learn the value of marijuana, the value of cannabis in other parts of the world and in cities in America by experiencing cannabis in, in Southeast Asia and by meeting people from cities uh, in the armed forces and Hemp is growing wild in central Kentucky at the time because during World War II, the cannabis prohibition was briefly lifted for hemp for victory. Kentucky was growing acres and acres of hemp for fiber for the U.S. Navy. And then that was ended in 1946, but the hemp plants didn't know that, and they were still growing wild in the fence rows. So these guys realized that this plant that was growing wild behind their grandparents' barn had value in the cities. All they had to do was grow it and not get caught. And not getting caught was already part of the culture. And they were already tobacco farmers. They'd been tobacco farming since they were kids. So that wasn't new. All they had to do was plant this crop instead of that crop and then run it. And so they were up and running fast and not just growing a little garden patch, but growing you know, growing it by the acre. And they had connections through the armed forces and through Louisville to Chicago, various ways to move product. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot going on there. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, I feel like I'm on, uh, I'm not a part of the podcast. I'm listening to one, you know, like, <laughs> like I listened to my Narcos podcast. I'm like, oh, what happened next? It, 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 <laughs> it, this honestly does feel, it, it does feel a little bit like Narcos because as we started, you know, as I started listening to the book on, on Audible and everything like that, I was, I was taken back by, Basically, because I live in around the area where they talked about flying a plane into Bowman Field, which is where 
I think, what was it, Johnny Boone gets in a pickup truck, they get a bunch of marijuana, they drive out to Bardstown, and then helicopters swarm in on Bardstown area, and which is right where that rooster... Rooster Run is right there. Yeah, which if you're driving towards Bardstown and you're heading towards Jim Beam or Four Roses, and you'll you'll notice on the right-hand side, there's this kind of like, I don't want to say run down, but there's definitely this little kind it's of... It's abandoned right now. Okay, right? so it's a run-down little, I guess, Gas station. convenience store, mm-hmm. and there's, what, a 13-foot rooster? I haven't measured it, but, you know, let's, let's say 10 to 20 foot rooster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you had mentioned that in the book. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like it's all I can visualize this. And for people of a certain age, Rooster Run Kentucky was a fairly regular Johnny Carson punchline. He would Rooster Run Kentucky was a, a, a place name that he would drop from time to time. It's just this funny sounding place. And it's a straight stretch of road in a place where there's not a lot of straight stretches of road. And the police were following Johnny Boone, leaving Bowman Field, having liaised with, I think, a Piper Aztec that had flown back from Belize with a bunch of Belizean cannabis. And the radio traffic of the police officers were like, if we let him get into Washington County, we might lose him. And another cop said, well, if we let him get into Marion County, we might lose him and the drugs and everything. So they decide to interdict him en route, and where they decide to do that is Rooster Run because the road is straight, and they just drop a helicopter right in front of him and stop the truck dead, and then all the co- and then cop cars come in behind him. So it was quite the scene. And to make sure my my timeline set up here is that they were bringing in marijuana from Belize because there were too many flyovers happening in Marion County, and they couldn't really grow crops there anymore without getting caught time and time again. That timeline is part of it. The Belize bust is early 1982. The first flyover from the Kentucky State Police with helicopters in Marion County in Kentucky begins in 1980. So there is a couple of seasons of flyover. But my understanding of why they're smuggling from the Caribbean is because they're victims of their own success. They're growing substantial amounts of outdoor marijuana in a regular growing season here. And then as the helicopters start coming, they branch out to other parts of the Kentucky and then other states in the Midwest. But their buyers want that amount of product year round. And they don't have it year round. They have it when they have it, which is at the end of the year. And so they sell, you know, a ton or two tons of product to somebody in, you know, California or Chicago or wherever they're selling it. And then that person comes back to them a couple of months later and is like, all right, we want it again. Well, we don't have it again. You're gonna have to wait. And they're like, no, you need to go get it. Because they, when there a term for it, it was like the Kentucky something or like they, they wanted like a particular type of marijuana and that's it. That's what they were growing. That comes in time, right? At first, they're just growing it and they're pretending like they're smuggling it from somewhere else because Kentucky doesn't have a name for itself. But then as Kentucky, as these guys generate a name for themselves, it becomes kind of a brand. And then people want that Kentucky brand. And so as they're growing it in Ohio or wherever they're growing it, they're growing in Ohio, bringing it back to Kentucky and then selling it to people in Ohio, telling them it's from Kentucky. They could have very easily just moved it from Ohio to another part of Ohio, but there's a more value to it at this point being from Kentucky, being grown by these guys. But the reason they're smuggling it is to maintain the supply chain during the off season of the outdoor cycle. I'm trying to think of a good analogy about how you could bring that back to bourbon, but I'm trying to think of like, oh yeah, just take MGP and rebottle it and put it somewhere else. It's but. <laughs> bottled, I mean, it was a bottled and bond product, you yeah. know? I mean, they had to, they were out of their, they were specializing in one season. Uh, they were, Chiba was not doing so well out of season. Yeah. They were trying selling to, out. They're trying to get that 23-year-old Pappy in the off season before the drop. True. Yeah. Very true. Very true. <laughs> we talked about one of the bus. We talked, we talked about the helicopters flying over. Talk about one of the other busts in there to kind of whet people's appetite to go and 
check out the book. So this Minnesota bus is really the superlative one where Johnny Boone and a crew of about 20 guys up in Minnesota in late 1987, really important in the history of the drug war, which just turned 50 years old, because in 1987, one batch of Reagan's drug laws take effect in the 1st of November, 87, that imposes the minimum sentencing guidelines on people who were busted. And so the DEA was really hot to bust people at that deadline. And these Minnesota law enforcement guys, state guys, found, discovered this giant outdoor marijuana crop that was growing in this farm community somewhere between Minneapolis and Fargo, like in the nowhere part of Minnesota. And they decided, the Minnesota law enforcement, that they had to raid this place because if they waited until the 1st of November, the DEA was going to step in and take a hold of the of the operation and take credit for what these state guys had found. So they go in and they bust Johnny Boone and his crew, and they all end up getting caught. And it's what the police say is 90 tons of marijuana. Now, 90 tons, according to state law enforcement in Minnesota in 1987, the way they get to 90 tons is they weigh one dump truck load. They multiply that by 62, which is the number of dump truck loads of marijuana they take off the farm. And then so much marijuana is still left on the farm, they take that time 62 number and double it. And they get to 90 tons that way. So it's just kind of a, a rough... Uh, back of the envelope. The estimate. DEA would have had that down more precise. I'm <laughs> maybe, saying, maybe you know the DEA would have been more precise on that. But it, it, in your research, is that do you come across a lot of the inner fightings uh, of law enforcement? Because as as someone who has followed the drug trade from uh, podcasting and movies and stuff like that, it seems to me like there's always like these inner fightings between law enforcement. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. In your research, is that do you come across a lot of the 
inner fightings uh, of law enforcement because as, as someone who has followed the drug trade from uh, podcasting and movies and stuff like that, it seems to me like there's always like these inner fightings between law enforcement. Yeah, law enforcement agencies, it's always a, it's a turf war. Who's going to get credit for, for X or Y? This Belize bust that we talked about earlier was conducted on a federal level, not by the DEA, but the FBI, because the DEA in Louisville at the time was considered untrustworthy. And for good reason, the bluegrass conspiracy stuff comes in where Harold Brown, I think that's right, Drew Thornton and his buddy were dirty cops. And one was a dirty DEA agent. And they were essentially drug dealers in the cloak of drug cops. And so local Louisville drug cops did not trust the local DEA office and so brought the FBI on board to be the federal agency for that particular bust because Harold Brown and the DEA were not trustworthy. I also found through Freedom Information Act requests, lots of back and forth between FBI and DEA regarding cornbread mafia activity because they were all kind of trying to get the glory of breaking up what they considered to be a real threat to public safety. You know what I really liked about this story too was you look at Johnny Boone almost like Pablo Escobar. You know, when you're watching Narcos, you look at it and you think, I think he's a good guy. Like he's he's actually helping. And, and when Johnny Boone was in court, he said, listen, I wasn't here to hurt anybody. I wasn't doing anything. I was just trying to provide for my family and my community. And you're almost rooting for them at some point to to get away with this. Right. I mean, in reporting it, you know, it felt more like the more I reported the story, the more I empathized with the men who did prison time. Because even though some of these guys weren't necessarily all around great people, there was no reason they should have been gone to jail for for decades for cultivating marijuana. Uh, there was no need for it. And so the tragedy is not just the impact that had on themselves personally, but on their families and their small communities. You took some of the biggest producers of this community and you just stripped them away of their families and, and their small tight knit communities. And it really, you know, the drug war is a war on people. The drug war is a war on communities. And the cornbread mafia story is a prime example of how the power of the federal government just ripped families apart. Well, the difference too, is my understanding. Pablo Escobar was dropping bodies. You know, he was, he was killing people left and right. Correct. That was not happening within the cornbread mafia at a high level. I mean. Yeah. I wouldn't say left and right. It's not a story without violence. It's not, it's not all kumbaya, peace and love. There's definitely some violence in the system. Anytime you're dealing with an economy that exists outside the law, the only way to enforce any sort of disagreement is with violence. And so there is violence in this story, but generally speaking, it's not an insane level of, but, of I'm talking like, like I'm talking like innocent people. Right. Or, like th these were people involved in the activity that may have been hurt. Correct. And so and so th that is a distinct difference than Central American, South American cocaine trade where lots of innocent people were wrapped up and hurt and killed by by the operation. That's not the case here. And so relatively nonviolent is how I've described it in the past, but certainly there's certainly violence inherent. You can't be you can't be half a gangster. <laughs> right. Like once you're in that game, you're in it. And if you try to be a nice guy, you just get taken advantage of. So the only way to be a man in that game is to be a man with the threat of exhibiting violence. So it's a dangerous game to be in. You can't you can't be in it halfway. But that being said, just like Fred said, innocent people aren't getting killed on the roadside. So another part of this when you're going through and getting information and and trying to talk to people, there is something that was a very common thread throughout this was that Nobody talks. 
you know, as part of that community aspect, nobody wants to give up any information. That's exactly right. And so of these 70 guys that were busted in between 85 and 89, none of them talk in exchange for a lesser sentence. The federal government had a RICO style case built to roll all these guys up into one prosecution and put what they thought were the kingpins away for life without parole. But they had zero witnesses, even though they had 70 guys on the books, none of them would go on the stand and point a finger. And so consequently, the federal prosecutors held a press conference here in Louisville, summer of 89 at the federal courthouse down on Broadway and 6th, where they laid out their case against these guys at a press conference to the media without giving anyone an opportunity to defend themselves. And that's the press conference where the term cornbread mafia was first uttered in public. One of these prosecutors refer to them as the cornbread mafia and the media lit up their ears. And that's what led the headlines on the wire services and the local news. And it was guilty by media, not guilty in the court of law sort of thing. Absolutely correct. And in the way the media then portrayed the press conference, it sounded like 70 men were arrested overnight. They were loaded up on buses. Like it was all kind of a like an immediate one-time thing instead of something that had slow rolled over the past like four years. And you're a member of the media. So you, as am I, or formerly, you get a, when you see something like that, and then you're reporting on the full story of, of the history, how did you feel about how the media was reporting the cornbread mafia at that time? It was a mixed bag. So some members of the media were doing their best to f- to get inside and have some empathy for what they saw was the you know the other side of the story, mm-hmm. and others of them were not. And in in you know in both cases, reporters from the Courier Journal were on both sides of that equation. Al Cross was a really great Courier Journal reporter who really dug into and was able to get sourcing from some of these outlaws, you know, in the wild in Raywick and Marion County in Bardstown, because he worked, he worked his beat and he was down there and visible and, and people knew who he was and began to trust him and would talk to him a little bit on the side, on background, enough for him to get a story out that had more than just what the police were saying. Other members of the media, other reporters from the Courier Journal at the time were just taking what the police fed him. And it didn't really end there either because you came into the story as well as one of the last chapters of the book because that would actually kind of took me by surprise a little bit too when I was listening. It was was your experience with this because Johnny Boone, you and him had a relationship, correct? And you ended up knowing each other. And then one day he disappeared for other, you know, more reasons of technically growing more, correct? Correct. So they tried to indict you and in saying, you need to tell us where he is. You, where is this picture taken? Correct. So I, so in the course of reporting the story, got to get to know Johnny Boone. The cover photograph of the book is a, is a shirtless picture of Johnny Boone uh, smoking a very large joint in a clearly tropical location. I took that photograph. And at the time, I'd made one set of prints of that photograph and, and the couple that went with it. Uh, and I'd given it to one person. I'd given them to Johnny Boone. So I moved back to New York in March of 08. And then he gets busted uh, in May of 08, so just a couple months later. And when the federal agents rate his place, they see my photographs of him in his place. And so th- they put two and two together. They're using my photographs as part of the media package of, have you seen this man? And it's my photographs of him. So this didn't sit well with me. I was going behind them to media outlets saying, you're using my photograph without my permission. I would like you to stop, please. You're sending the wrong message. It makes it look like I'm cooperating with a federal investigation and I am not. You 
need to stop that immediately, please. And some of those media organizations would stop using my photograph and others like America's Most Wanted would not. So I eventually contact the U.S. Marshal Service at the beginning of the following year and say, hey, I'm Jim Higdon. You know who I am. Will you please stop using my pictures, please? And they were like, well, are you going to tell us everything you know about Johnny Boone? I'm like, well, no. And they're like, well, are you blocking this investigation? You know, it got high on the horse. And, and I was like, look, you know, I'm a journalist. Like, I'm not giving up sources. You know, I'll tell you, you know, what I can tell you, but I'm not giving up any sources. And I was living in New York at the time. And that was January of 09. And that I thought was the end of the conversation. And then the following month, I'm served with a subpoena in my Brooklyn apartment to appear in Louisville at a federal grand jury in like two weeks. It was just at the beginning of the Obama administration. I think the day before I'm scheduled to appear, Eric Holder is sworn in as the attorney general for Obama. And I'm due to appear before a federal grand jury where if, if I don't talk, I could be held in contempt and serve 18 months, right? Like I'm on the hook for 18 months in prison for not talking and I'm prepared to do it. And I get a good attorney and we call the assistant U.S. attorney and he immediately thinks I'm going to plead the fifth. And my attorney's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're pleading the first amendment here. We're not pleading the fifth amendment. First of all, he doesn't have access to the fifth amendment because he hasn't participated or witnessed any criminal activity. And secondly, he's a journalist and he's writing a book. Well, the U.S. attorney's office did not see that the way we saw it and had no experience dealing with media. Turns out there's a five or six-page Justice Department guideline for subpoenaing a member of the news media, which you'll be surprised to learn the Louisville office had not followed. Uh, <laughs> and then it was a question of whether I qualified as a member of the news media. I wasn't working for a newspaper at the time. I didn't have a masthead. I was working on a book contract, you know, on a book that hadn't been published yet. Like, did I even qualify? And so I rattled off my bona fides to the assistant U.S. attorney. I was a Columbia Journalism School graduate. I'd worked at the New York Times. I was on contract with a major publishing house. I made this amount of money the previous year as a freelancer. Yeah, I qualify as a journalist. And he left the meeting with his Blackberry press to his ear. And that was lunch. So it was like 1130 or noon. I was due to appear at 130. And within 20 minutes, they cut me loose. It was a real close shave. Real big sigh of relief, I'd say. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be put in that situation. That's uh, that's awful brave to say, well, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to defend my rights. Well, I mean, just like you said, no one talks, right? Like I come from this community where these 70 guys, all of them could have gotten out of their prison sentence. All they had to do was go on the stand and point a finger and none of them did. And I'm writing the story about these people and really becoming impressed and, and, and enamored with their loyalty to each other and to their community. It all goes back to prohibition where these kids learn the only way to protect their family from the federal agents is to keep their mouths shut. And that's a culture that gets handed down through the generations. And I grew up inside that culture. The last thing I'm going to do is betray that culture. I'm a part of it. And so it was very strange to find myself as part of my own story. It's this, if you're a film buff, adaptation the Orchid Thief adaptation movie with Nicolas Cage, where he he writes himself into his own story. He's like, I wrote myself into my own story. Isn't that isn't that weird? And like here I here I was like recognizing in real time, oh, this is a scene in my book that I'm writing, that I'm a part of, that I'm listening to, that I'm speaking in. Like I am now part of my book. <laughs> How weird to write an autobiography at that point. Though. I mean, it was I I got pulled into my own story. Like I didn't I didn't intend for it to be that way. Like it's just what happened. So if we kind of look forward in time a little bit, so Johnny Boone got sentenced to 20 years in prison. Do you think that would happen today with the way that everything's shifting and 
marijuana legalization happening everywhere. Well, let's let, let's go back. At what point do you say he was sentenced to twenty? He did in in eighty seven when he got busted. He got busted a, a week before the laws changed, so he actually didn't get sentenced to twenty. The Bickett brothers got sentenced to twenty. Johnny, I think, got sentenced to ten or 15 and did 10. And then this last time when he got busted recently, he only got sentenced to five years, including time served. So he's out of prison now. Certainly legalization paints a really strange picture because in the public's eye, marijuana is all but legal because as we sit here now, 36 states have legalized medical marijuana, not Kentucky. Kentucky is one of 14 states without any medical marijuana program. And there's 18 states with full-blown legal cannabis. But even in those states with it, with full-blown legal cannabis, it's still illegal under federal law, and the DEA is still flying helicopters. There's still DEA money going into state police departments for eradication task forces. So it's not legal. You know, like people are still going to prison for cannabis at the federal level right now today, even though it's fewer than it used to be. It's still a crime that people are getting prosecuted and sent to prison for. And that's why we need to focus our attention and get full legalization passed at the federal level because it affects all of us, even those people who think marijuana doesn't affect them or that drugs don't affect them and then they're not a part of it. We're all paying for a bunch of bullshit. Mm, just to legalize it already. I'm you know? kind of with you. We all are. And that, that kind of leads us into your new venture of, of cornbread hemp. So talk about this a little bit. Ooh, let's. So the book led me into a journalism career. I was covering cannabis and politics and policy for national publications based on the success of the book. So in 2018, I was covering the legalization of hemp in the Farm Bill through the Farm Bill for Politico and saw my first hemp harvest in Kentucky, my first, the first hemp flower harvest, cannabinoid hemp, and realized that this was the first stage of, of real legalization, the, you know, the camel nose under the tent with full spectrum hemp extract. We're on the verge of full legalization, but the industry was making products at a very low standard. And so recognizing that we could produce products at a much higher standard and that no one was doing it compelled me to drop everything. My first cousin, Eric Zipperly, is my business partner, and he is younger than I and an e-commerce wizard and was exiting his second startup when I was doing this at the same time. So we got together over Thanksgiving of that year, it was 2018, and realized that like our skill sets perfectly suited each other and that it was time to drop everything and to do this thing. And so by January of 2019, we had an angel investor who gave us just enough to get started. And by the end of 2019, we were the first Kentucky company to offer CBD products that were USDA certified organic. And we were ready to take those to market and do a really big things with them last year. And then COVID kind of shut down everyone's outdoor game. We switched to uh, an e-commerce company and we, we were already doing e-commerce, but we focused on our e-commerce business and did a crowdfund on WeFunder, raised 400 grand during the pandemic. And this year we're deploying those resources and growing the brand and We've already doubled our, our revenue last year before the end of June this year, and we're on pace to make a really big splash this year. That's fantastic. Congratulations on the uh, the new venture. Kind of talk about a little bit more about the products that you are you are creating too. So what makes our products unique and different than other CBD products, other hemp products out there is that first of all, they're full spectrum, which means they include some THC. The federal legal limit is 0.3% THC, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's not nothing. And um, that's what it says on the label here. 
And so open that up, Fred. You can either break that seal. Yeah. And they're flower only extracted. So almost all CBD products are made from a, the whole plant. They cut the whole plant down and they run it through a wood chipper and they make their products from the whole plant, including the, the leaves. And we do a flower only extraction. So it's just, it's just the flower. And that makes them more potent and it makes them taste much better. And they're also vegan, so we don't use gelatin. So you're noticing a, like a softer consistency than a normal gummy. That's because there's no gelatin. We use an apple pectin instead of gelatin as a binding agent. So they're flower only, full spectrum, certified organic, and vegan. You put a lot of thought into it. Product formulation is is really important. Also, I really dig the packaging. I mean, this is going to sound silly, but I love the label. Well, you know, Fred, you're in a great position to attest, like, you know, half of bourbon is the label, right? Yeah, it's a lot of it. So packaging and, and presentation is really important. And so we spend a lot of time on how these products, you know, not just how we develop the product, but, yeah. you know, how we're presenting them. No, it's awesome. And congratulations on on all the success and congratulations on on starting the, the CBD company. I can only imagine once Kentucky starts moving, the trending in the right direction, you've got some plans already in, in order to... Uh, start taking that 0.3 to maximize it. Well, there's already talk in Congress of increasing that 0.3 to 1.0, and we can make some really great products with 1% THC. 1% THC is a lot if uh, you know what you're doing. And 0.3% THC is a lot if you know what you're doing. So, you know, we're really looking forward to the next year of product development and what's in store for Congress. Congress is largely dysfunctional, but every now and then it gets its act together and it does the right thing. Awesome. Yeah. Congress uh, making bourbon a unique product in the United States is a good example of that. And I'll be honest with you, I've admired what you've done and it's been it's been great, you know, having conversations with you on Twitter over the years. And one of the questions that I've always had for you, I asked it beforehand. Why the hell isn't Cornbread Mafia a movie? <laughs> we all want to see it in a movie. What happened? Well, first of all, Fred, that means a lot coming from you. You, you, your, your reputation precedes itself. You know, in the bourbon space, you're okay. you're the man. So I really appreciate that. As for the eternal struggle to turn the book into a media property, whether that's a, a movie or a TV series, it continues. I was stuck for five years in what I learned was called development hell in Los Angeles. Yeah. It turns out you'll be surprised to learn people in Los Angeles don't always say what they, you know, don't always tell the truth about stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so you get told something and that thing that you get told that you're... They're certain, absolutely positive this thing is gonna is is true. Turns out it turns out not to be true. So I got stuck in development hell for some time on the film option. I was lucky enough to claw back my rights and resell them to a better place. And so mm -hmm. we're in a better place now on development. The one good piece of development that I can share with you is that Cornbread Mafia is in production to be a podcast soon, but it will be a an independent podcast that will tell the story of the cornbread mafia based on my book but as a but as a production that'll do better for you than a movie will well, i think it's, i it's think this is a podcast for sure well it's certainly a stepping stone right yeah. it's a new way it's a new way to consume the story it's a new way to share it with a new audience it's a new way to introduce people to the brand mm -hmm. of cornbread hemp it's like it's just uh it, it revitalizes the book and lets people know that the story still has currency in the marketplace also i think it'd be good for helping encourage people to think about the legalization of marijuana, because uh, going back to the whole continued stories, I mean, we have people rotting in jail right now for selling weed, you know? It's true. 
the more one understands the impact of the marijuana prohibition on communities and families, the more intolerable that prohibition is and the more it's important to not just end it and not just wish that it was over, but to do stuff about it, to talk to your representatives about it being a serious issue and that you're willing to vote against them if it comes down to their opponent being on a better side of this issue. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show today because you gave us insight into the book, insight into your products, insight into our current legal and, and political quorums and everything like that too. So thank you again for, for coming on the show. If people want to know more about the book, about you, about Cornbread Hemp, where can they find out more about it? They can find us at cornbreadhemp.com, at cornbreadhemp on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jim Higdon on Twitter. Come see us. Awesome. Right on. Well, cheers, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Make sure you follow Jim, follow us, Bourbon Pursuit, wherever you get your socials. Also follow our good buddy, Fred Minnick over here as well. With that, cheers, everybody. And we'll see you all next week. 